Chapter Sixteen, Part One of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Karen Savage. The Voyage of the Beagle, Chapter Sixteen, Part One, Northern Chile and Peru. Coast road to Coquimbo. Great loads carried by the miners. Coquimbo. Earthquake. Step formed terrace. Absence of recent deposits. Contemporaneousness of the tertiary formations. Excursion up the valley. Road to Guasco. Deserts. Valley of Copiapo. Rain and earthquakes. Hydrophobia. The despoblado. Indian ruins. Probable change of climate. Riverbed arched by an earthquake. Cold gales of wind. Noises from a hill. Iquique, salt alluvium, nitrate of soda, Lima, unhealthy country, ruins of Callao overthrown by an earthquake, recent subsidence, elevated shells on San Lorenzo, their decomposition, plain with embedded shells and fragments of pottery, antiquity of the Indian race. April 27th. I set out on a journey to Coquimbo, and thence through Guasco to Copiapo, where Captain Fitzroy kindly offered to pick me up in the Beagle. The distance in a straight line along the shore northward is only four hundred and twenty miles, but my mode of travelling made it a very long journey. I bought four horses and two mules, the latter carrying the luggage on alternate days. The six animals together only cost the value of twenty-five pounds sterling, and at Copiapo I sold them again for twenty-three. We travelled in the same independent manner as before, cooking our own meals and sleeping in the open air. As we rode towards the Vino del Mar, I took a farewell view of Valparaiso, and admired its picturesque appearance. For geological purposes I made a detour from the high road to the foot of the Bell of Quillota. We passed through an alluvial district rich in gold to the neighbourhood of Limache, where we slept. Washing for gold supports the inhabitants of numerous hovels, scattered along the sides of each little rivulet, but, like all those whose gains are uncertain, they are unthrifty in all their habits, and consequently poor. 28th. In the afternoon we arrived at a cottage at the foot of the Bell Mountain. The inhabitants were freeholders, which is not very usual in Chile. They supported themselves on the produce of a garden and a little field, but were very poor. Capital is here so deficient that the people are obliged to sell their green corn while standing in the field, in order to buy necessaries for the ensuing year. Wheat, in consequence, was dearer in the very district of its production than at Valparaiso, where the contractors live. The next day we joined the main road to Coquimbo. At night there was a very light shower of rain. This was the first drop that had fallen since the heavy rain of September 11th and 12th, which detained me a prisoner at the baths of Cauquenes. The interval was seven and a half months, but the rain this year in Chile was rather later than usual. The distant Andes were now covered by a thick mass of snow, and were a glorious sight. May 2nd. The road continued to follow the coast, at no great distance from the sea. The few trees and bushes which are common in central Chile decreased rapidly in numbers, and were replaced by a tall plant, something like a yucca in appearance. The surface of the country, on a small scale, was singularly broken and irregular, abrupt little peaks of rock rising out of small plains or basins. The indented coast and the bottom of the neighbouring sea, studded with breakers, would, if converted into dry land, present similar forms, 
and such a conversion without doubt has taken place in the part over which we rode. Third, Kilimari to Conchali. The country became more and more barren. In the valleys there was scarcely sufficient water for any irrigation, and the intermediate land was quite bare, not supporting even goats. In the spring, after the winter showers, a thin pasture rapidly springs up, and cattle are then driven down from the cordillera to graze for a short time. It is curious to observe how the seeds of the grass and other plants seem to accommodate themselves, as if by an acquired habit, to the quantity of rain which falls upon different parts of this coast. One shower far northward at Copiapo produces as great an effect on the vegetation as two at Huasco, and three or four in this district. At Valparaiso, a winter so dry as greatly to injure the pasture, would at Guasco produce the most unusual abundance. Proceeding northward, the quantity of rain does not appear to decrease in strict proportion to the latitude. At Conchalí, which is only sixty-seven miles north of Valparaiso, rain is not expected till the end of May, whereas at Valparaiso some generally falls early in April. The annual quantity is likewise small in proportion to the lateness of the season at which it commences. Fourth, Finding the coast-road devoid of interest of any kind, we turned inland towards the mining district and valley of Iapel. This valley, like every other in Chile, is level, broad, and very fertile. It is bordered on each side, either by cliffs of stratified shingle, or by bare, rocky mountains. Above the straight line of the uppermost irrigating ditch, all is brown as on a high road, while all below is of as bright a green as verdigris, from the beds of alfalfa, a kind of clover. We proceeded to Los Hornos, another mining district, where the principal hill was drilled with holes, like a great ant's nest. The Chilean miners are a peculiar race of men in their habits. Living for weeks together in the most desolate spots where they descend to the villages on feast-days, there is no excess of extravagance into which they do not run. They sometimes gain a considerable sum, and then, like sailors with prize-money, they try how soon they can contrive to squander it. They drink excessively, buy quantities of clothes, and in a few days return penniless to their miserable abodes, there to work harder than beasts of burden. This thoughtlessness, as with sailors, is evidently the result of a similar manner of life. Their daily food is found them, and they acquire no habits of carefulness. Moreover, temptation and the means of yielding to it are placed in their power at the same time. On the other hand, in Cornwall, and some other parts of England, where the system of selling part of the vein is followed, the miners, from being obliged to act and think for themselves, are a singularly intelligent and well-conducted set of men. The dress of the Chilean miner is peculiar and rather picturesque. He wears a very long shirt of some dark-coloured baize, with a leathern apron, the whole being fastened round his waist by a bright-coloured sash. His trousers are very broad, and his small cap of scarlet cloth is made to fit the head closely. We met a party of these miners in full costume, carrying the body of one of their companions to be buried. They marched at a very quick trot, four men supporting the corpse. One set, having run as hard as they could for about two hundred yards, were relieved by four others, who had previously dashed on ahead on horseback. Thus they proceeded, encouraging each other by wild cries. Altogether the scene formed a most strange funeral. We continued travelling northward in a zigzag line, sometimes stopping a day to geologize. The country was so thinly inhabited, and the track so obscure, that we often had difficulty in finding our way. On the twelfth I stayed at some mines. 
The ore in this case was not considered particularly good, but from being abundant, it was supposed the mine would sell for about thirty or forty thousand dollars, that is, six thousand or eight thousand pounds sterling. Yet it had been bought by one of the English associations for an ounce of gold, thirty-one and eight. The ore is yellow pyrites, which, as I have already remarked, before the arrival of the English, was not supposed to contain a particle of copper. On a scale of profits nearly as great as in the above instance, piles of cinders abounding with minute globules of metallic copper were purchased, yet with these advantages the mining associations, as is well known, contrived to lose immense sums of money. The folly of the greater number of commissioners and shareholders amounted to infatuation, a thousand pounds per annum given in some cases to entertain the Chilean authorities, libraries of well-bound geological books, miners brought out for particular metals as tin, which are not found in Chile, contracts to supply the miners with milk in parts where there are no cows, machinery where it could not possibly be used, and a hundred similar arrangements bore witness to our absurdity, and to this day afford amusement to the natives. Yet there can be no doubt that the same capital well employed in these mines would have yielded an immense return, a confidential man of business, a practical miner and assayer, would have been all that was required. Captain Head has described the wonderful load which the Apires, truly beasts of burden, carry up from the deepest mines. I confess I thought the account exaggerated, so that I was glad to take an opportunity of weighing one of the loads which I picked out by hazard. It required considerable exertion on my part, when standing directly over it, to lift it from the ground. The load was considered underweight, when found to be one hundred and ninety-seven pounds. The Apire had carried this up eighty perpendicular yards, part of the way by a steep passage, but the greater part up notched poles, placed in a zigzag line up the shaft. According to the general regulation, the Apire is not allowed to halt for breath, except the mine is six hundred feet deep. The average load is considered as rather more than two hundred pounds, and I have been assured that one of three hundred pounds, twenty-two stone and a half, by way of a trial, has been brought up from the deepest mine. At this time, the Apires were bringing up the usual load twelve times in the day, that is two thousand four hundred pounds from eighty yards deep, and they were employed in the intervals in breaking and picking ore. These men, excepting from accidents, are healthy and appear cheerful. Their bodies are not very muscular, they rarely eat meat once a week, and never oftener, and then only the hard, dry charqui. Although with the knowledge that the labour was voluntary, it was nevertheless quite revolting to see the state in which they reached the mouth of the mine, their bodies bent forward, leaning with their arms on the steps, their legs bowed, their muscles quivering, the perspiration streaming from their faces over their breasts, their nostrils distended, the corners of their mouth forcibly drawn back, and the expulsion of their breath most laborious. Each time they draw their breath, they utter an articulate cry of, "'Ay, ay!' which ends in a sound rising from deep in the chest, but shrill like the note of a fife. After staggering to the pile of ore, they emptied the garpacho. In two or three seconds, recovering their breath, they wiped the sweat from their brows, and, apparently quite fresh, descended the mine again at a quick pace. This appears to me a wonderful instance of the amount of labour which habit, for it can be nothing else, will enable a man to endure. In the evening, talking with the mayordomo of these mines about the number of foreigners now scattered over the whole country, he told me that, though quite a young man, he remembers when he was a boy at school at Coquimbo, a holiday being given to see the captain of an English ship, who was brought to the city to speak to the governor. He believes that nothing would have induced any boy in the school, himself included, to have gone close to the Englishman. 
so deeply had they been impressed with an idea of the heresy, contamination, and evil to be derived from contact with such a person. To this day they relate the atrocious actions of the buccaneers, and especially of one man, who took away the figure of the Virgin Mary, and returned the year after for that of St. Joseph, saying it was a pity the lady should not have a husband. I heard also of an old lady who, at a dinner at Coquimbo, remarked how wonderfully strange it was that she should have lived to dine in the same room with an Englishman, for she remembered as a girl that twice at the mere cry of Los Ingleses, every soul, carrying what valuables they could, had taken to the mountains. Fourteenth. We reached Coquimbo, where we stayed a few days. The town is remarkable for nothing but its extreme quietness. It is said to contain from six thousand to eight thousand inhabitants. On the morning of the seventeenth it rained lightly, the first time this year, for about five hours. The farmers who plant their corn near the sea-coast, where the atmosphere is most humid, taking advantage of this shower, would break up the ground. After a second they would put the seed in, and if a third shower should fall, they would reap a good harvest in the spring. It was interesting to watch the effect of this trifling amount of moisture. Twelve hours afterwards the ground appeared as dry as ever, yet after an interval of ten days all the hills were faintly tinged with green patches, the grass being sparingly scattered in hair-like fibres a full inch in length. Before this shower every part of the surface was bare as on a high road. In the evening Captain Fitzroy and myself were dining with Mr. Edwards, an English resident well known for his hospitality by all who have visited Coquimbo, when a sharp earthquake happened. I heard the forecoming rumble, but from the screams of the ladies, the running of the servants, and the rush of several of the gentlemen to the doorway, I could not distinguish the motion. Some of the women afterwards were crying with terror, and one gentleman said he should not be able to sleep all night, or if he did, it would only be to dream of falling houses. The father of this person had lately lost all his property at Talcahuano, and he himself had only just escaped a falling roof at Valparaíso in 1822. He mentioned a curious coincidence which then happened. He was playing at cards, when a German, one of the party, got up, and said he would never sit in a room in these countries with the door shut, as, owing to his having done so, he had nearly lost his life at Copiapo. Accordingly he opened the door, and no sooner had he done this than he cried out, "'Here it comes again!' and the famous shock commenced. The whole party escaped. The danger in an earthquake is not from the time lost in opening the door, but from the chance of its becoming jammed by the movement of the walls. It is impossible to be much surprised at the fear which natives and old residents, though some of them known to be men of great command of mind, so generally experience during earthquakes. I think, however, this excess of panic may be partly attributed to a want of habit in governing their fear, as it is not a feeling they are ashamed of. Indeed, the natives do not like to see a person indifferent. I heard of two Englishmen who, sleeping in the open air during a smart shock, knowing that there was no danger, did not rise. The natives cried out indignantly, "'Look at those heretics! They do not even get out of their beds!' I spent some days in examining the step-formed terraces of Shingle, first noticed by Captain B. Hall, and believed by Mr. Lyle, to have been formed by the sea, during the gradual rising of the land. This certainly is the true explanation, for I found numerous shells of existing species on these terraces. Five narrow, gently-sloping, fringe-like terraces rise one behind the other, and where best developed are formed of shingle. They front the bay, and sweep up both sides of the valley. At Guasco, north of Coquimbo, the phenomenon is displayed on a much grander scale, so as to strike with surprise even some of the inhabitants. The terraces are there much broader, and may be called plains. In some parts there are six of them, but generally only five. 
They run up the valley for thirty-seven miles from the coast. These step-formed terraces, or fringes, closely resemble those in the valley of Santa Cruz, and, except in being on a smaller scale, those great ones along the whole coastline of Patagonia. They have undoubtedly been formed by the denuding power of the sea, during long periods of rest in the gradual elevation of the continent. Shells of many existing species not only lie on the surface of the terraces at Coquimbo, to a height of two hundred and fifty feet, but are embedded in a friable calcareous rock, which in some places is as much as between twenty and thirty feet in thickness, but is of little extent. These modern beds rest on an ancient tertiary formation containing shells, apparently all extinct. Although I examined so many hundred miles of coast on the Pacific as well as the Atlantic side of the continent, I found no regular strata containing sea-shells of recent species excepting at this place, and at a few points northward on the road to Guasco. This fact appears to me highly remarkable, for the explanation generally given by geologists of the absence in any district of stratified fossiliferous deposits of a given period, namely, that the surface then existed as dry land, is not here applicable for we know from the shells strewed on the surface and embedded in loose sand or mould that the land for thousands of miles along both coasts has lately been submerged. The explanation, no doubt, must be sought in the fact that the whole southern part of the continent has been for a long time slowly rising, and therefore that all matter deposited along shore in shallow water must have been soon brought up and slowly exposed to the wearing action of the sea-beach and it is only in comparatively shallow water that the greater number of marine organic beings can flourish, and in such water it is obviously impossible that strata of any great thickness can accumulate. To show the vast power of the wearing action of sea-beaches, we need only appeal to the great cliffs along the present coasts of Patagonia, and to the escarpments or ancient sea-cliffs at different levels, one above another, on that same line of coast. The old underlying tertiary formation at Coquimbo appears to be of about the same age with several deposits on the coast of Chile, of which that of Navidad is the principal one, and with the great formation of Patagonia. Both at Navidad and in Patagonia there is evidence that since the shells, a list of which has been seen by Professor E. Forbes, there entombed were living, there has been a subsidence of several hundred feet, as well as an ensuing elevation. It may naturally be asked, how it comes that, although no extensive fossiliferous deposits of the recent period, nor of any period intermediate between it and the ancient tertiary epoch, have been preserved on either side of the continent, yet that at this ancient tertiary epoch sedimentary matter containing fossil remains should have been deposited and preserved at different points in north and south lines, over a space of 1,100 miles on the shores of the Pacific, and of at least 1,350 miles on the shores of the Atlantic, and in an east and west line of seven hundred miles across the widest part of the continent. I believe the explanation is not difficult, and that it is perhaps applicable to nearly analogous facts observed in other quarters of the world. Considering the enormous power of denudation which the sea possesses, as shown by numberless facts, it is not probable that a sedimentary deposit, when being upraised, could pass through the ordeal of the beach, so as to be preserved in sufficient masses to last to a distant period, without it were originally of wide extent and of considerable thickness. Now it is impossible on a moderately shallow bottom, which alone is favourable to most living creatures, that a thick and widely extended covering of sediment could be spread out without the bottom sank down to receive the successive layers. This seems to have actually taken place at about the same period in southern Patagonia and Chile, though these places are a thousand miles apart. 
Hence, if prolonged movements of approximately contemporaneous subsidence are generally widely extensive, as I am strongly inclined to believe from my examination of the coral reefs of the great oceans, or if, confining our view to South America, the subsiding movements have been co-extensive with those of elevation, by which, within the same period of existing shells, the shores of Peru, Chile, Tierra del Fuego, Patagonia, and La Plata have been upraised, then we can see that at the same time, at far distant points, circumstances would have been favourable to the formation of fossiliferous deposits of wide extent and of considerable thickness, and such deposits, consequently, would have a good chance of resisting the wear and tear of successive beach-lines, and of lasting to a future epoch. May 21st I set out in company with Don José Edwards, to the silver mine of Arqueros, and thence up the valley of Coquimbo. Passing through a mountainous country, we reached by nightfall the mines belonging to Mr. Edwards. I enjoyed my night's rest here from a reason which will not be fully appreciated in England, namely, the absence of fleas. The rooms in Coquimbo swarm with them, but they will not live here at the height of only three or four thousand feet. It can scarcely be the trifling diminution of temperature, but some other cause which destroys these troublesome insects at this place. The mines are now in a bad state though they formerly yielded about two thousand pounds in weight of silver a year. It has been said that a person with a copper mine will gain. With silver he may gain, but with gold he is sure to lose. This is not true. All the large Chilean fortunes have been made by mines of the more precious metals. A short time since an English physician returned to England from Copiapo, taking with him the profits of one share of a silver mine, which amounted to about twenty-four thousand pounds sterling. No doubt a copper mine, with care, is a sure game, whereas the other is gambling, or rather taking a ticket in a lottery. The owners lose great quantities of rich ores, for no precautions can prevent robberies. I heard of a gentleman laying a bet with another, that one of his men should rob him before his face. The ore, when brought out of the mine, is broken into pieces, and the useless stone thrown on one side. A couple of the miners, who were thus employed, pitched, as if by accident, two fragments away at the same moment, and then cried out for a joke, let us see which rolls furthest. The owner, who was standing by, bet a cigar with his friend on the race. The miner, by this means, watched the very point amongst the rubbish where the stone lay. In the evening he picked it up, and carried it to his master, showing him a rich mass of silver ore, and saying, This was the stone on which you won a cigar by its rolling so far. May 23rd. We descended into the fertile valley of Coquimbo, and followed it till we reached an hacienda belonging to a relation of Don José, where we stayed the next day. I then rode one day's journey further, to see what were declared to be some petrified shells and beans, which latter turned out to be small quartz-pebbles. We passed through several small villages, and the valley was beautifully cultivated, and the whole scenery very grand. We were here near the main cordillera, and the surrounding hills were lofty. In all parts of northern Chile, fruit-trees produce much more abundantly at a considerable height near the Andes than in the lower country. The figs and grapes of this district are famous for their excellence, and are cultivated to a great extent. This valley is, perhaps, the most productive one north of Quillota. I believe it contains, including Coquimbo, twenty-five thousand inhabitants. The next day I returned to the hacienda, and thence, together with Don José, to Coquimbo. June 2nd we set out for the valley of Guasco, following the coast-road, which was considered rather less desert than the other. Our first day's ride was to a solitary house called Yerba Buena, where there was a pasture for our horses. 
The shower mentioned as having fallen a fortnight ago only reached about half-way to Guasco. We had, therefore, in the first part of our journey, a most faint tinge of green, which soon faded quite away. Even where brightest, it was scarcely sufficient to remind one of the fresh turf and budding flowers of the spring of other countries. While travelling through these deserts, one feels like a prisoner shut up in a gloomy court, who longs to see something green, and to smell a moist atmosphere. June 3rd. Yerbabuena to Carizal. During the first part of the day we crossed a mountainous rocky desert, and afterwards a long deep sandy plain strewed with broken sea-shells. There was very little water, and that little saline. The whole country, from the coast to the Cordillera, is an uninhabited desert. I saw traces only of one living animal in abundance, namely, the shells of a bulimus, which were collected together in extraordinary numbers on the driest spots. In the spring one humble little plant sends out a few leaves, and on these the snails feed. As they are seen only very early in the morning, when the ground is slightly damp with dew, the Guascos believe that they are bred from it. I have observed in other places that extremely dry and sterile districts, where the soil is calcareous, are extraordinarily favourable to land-shells. At Carizal there were a few cottages, some brackish water, and a trace of cultivation, but it was with difficulty that we purchased a little corn and straw for our horses. 4th. Carizal to Sauce. We continued to ride over desert plains tenanted by large herds of guanaco. We crossed also the valley of Chaneral which, although the most fertile one between Guasco and Coquimbo, is very narrow, and produces so little pasture that we could not purchase any for our horses. At Sauce we found a very civil old gentleman, superintendent of a copper-smelting furnace. As an especial favour he allowed me to purchase at a high price an armful of dirty straw, which was all the poor horses had for supper after their long day's journey. Few smelting furnaces are now at work in any part of Chile. It is found more profitable, on account of the extreme scarcity of firewood, and from the Chilean method of reduction being so unskilful, to ship the ore for Swansea. The next day we crossed some mountains to Freirina, in the valley of Guasco. During each day's ride further northward, the vegetation became more and more scanty. Even the great chandelier-like cactus was here replaced by a different and much smaller species. During the winter months, both in northern Chile and in Peru, a uniform bank of clouds hangs at no great height over the Pacific. From the mountains we had a very striking view of this white and brilliant aerial field, which sent arms up the valleys, leaving islands and promontories, in the same manner as the sea does in the Chonos archipelago and in Tierra del Fuego. We stayed two days at Freirina. In the valley of Guasco there are four small towns. At the mouth there is the port, a spot entirely desert and without any water in the immediate neighbourhood. Five leagues higher up stands Freirina, a long, straggling village with decent whitewashed houses. Again ten leagues further up, Ballenar is situated, and above this, Guasco Alto, a horticultural village famous for its dried fruit. On a clear day, the view up the valley is very fine. The straight opening terminates in the far distant snowy cordillera. On each side, an infinity of crossing lines are blended together in a beautiful haze. The foreground is singular from the number of parallel and step-formed terraces, and the included strip of green valley, with its willow-bushes, is contrasted on both hands with the naked hills. That the surrounding country was most barren will be readily believed, when it is known that a shower of rain had not fallen during the last thirteen months. The inhabitants heard with the greatest envy of the rain at Coquimbo, 
From the appearance of the sky they had hopes of equally good fortune, which, a fortnight afterwards, were realised. I was at Copiapo at the time, and there the people, with equal envy, talked of the abundant rain at Guasco. After two or three very dry years, perhaps with not more than one shower during the whole time, a rainy year generally follows, and this does more harm than even the drought. The rivers swell and cover with gravel and sand the narrow strips of ground which alone are fit for cultivation. The floods also injure the irrigating ditches. Great devastation had thus been caused three years ago. End of chapter 16, part 1